I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. Simon Molnar, welcome to The Mentor, mate. Thanks for having me. And you are the founder and I guess CEO or what, what's your title at the yeah, CEO. flagship? At flagship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So flagship, we'll talk about in a second. Um, probably, you know, I, I like to dig in a little bit. Uh, Sydney boy. Yep. Yep. Um, uh, always born, bred, raised in Sydney. Yeah, I feel like when you're born in Sydney, especially in the eastern suburbs, you, you don't venture too far away. East suburbs of Sydney. That's we're starting to build a profile now. Yeah. Uh, where'd you go to school? Uh, Mariah College. Went to Mariah. Um, so Mariah boy, uh, eastern suburbs. Um, you know, there's people will start. I fucking you know, he's uh, privileged or whatever. You know, like uh, elitism. What's the deal, mum and dad? You know what? I I would say that I've had a privileged upbringing. Um, but my parents had far from a privileged upbringing. So let's have a look at that. Talk about that. Yeah. So my my grandparents on both sides are migrants. And from which part of the world? My dad's parents from Hungary, um, fleeing the war, and mum's from Egypt. Is your mum Egyptian? Egyptian. Wow. Yeah. Quite a unique um, combination there. And both my parents grew up with not a lot. Uh, mum grew up in in the Shire. Dad grew up um, with a single mum. And both of them really kind of made sure that they gave both Nick and I the life that they didn't have. So um, 100%, I believe that I had a kind of privileged upbringing, but um, it was wholeheartedly, I mean, my parents didn't have it easy. They worked really hard to give us that lifestyle. Um, And Nick and I were able to kind of build and grow on it. Mona doesn't sound very Hungarian to me. It's very Hungarian. Is that right? Yeah, it's um, Hungarians will see the surname and straight away they know we're Hungarian. It's the equivalent of Miller or Smith. Oh, in, really? Yeah, over there. So. Like Mona Miller sounds. Because <laughs> yeah, what's interesting is, um, it's particularly when within, um, you know, I'm assuming that as a result of your father's family coming from Hungary during the war or around the war period, that they were fleeing the Jewish persecution. They were. And mum's not Jewish? She is. Mum's Jewish as well? Yeah. Okay, well, that's pretty unusual in Egypt, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I'm gonna go, we have to go back about as far as Moses to find out <laughs> <laughs> the Jewish people in Egypt. Yeah. Would that be right? Like, I, I, you know what? I probably haven't done as good a job of understanding my grandparents' history as I probably should have. Yep. Um, but, again, my understanding is that it wasn't easy for them either being Jews in, in Egypt. No, I'd imagine so because it's not a Jewish nation um, yeah. by, by in terms of 
for numbers. So my father also came to Australia during the war, and not for because of religious persecution, but because of the Germans occupied his his village in Greece. But um, they tend to come to Australia and they have their kids and their kids have their kids, in, in this case you, um, and everybody's a lot of pressure on everybody to go to university and do something at university. And, uh, and generally speaking, they send them to pretty good schools, um, even if that means – you know, working two or three jobs to get the kids through. Yep. Um, and you and Nick obviously got, got – but did Nick go to Mariah too? Yeah, he yeah, did. Okay. So uh, Mariah starts off a junior. I can't remember now. Yeah, starts like, from kindergarten. Yeah, goes through, and yep. goes through year 12. Yep. Um, were your parents then saying to you, okay, to you and Nick, okay, boys, uh, you leave school and you've got to go off and get a job, but more importantly, you've got to go to university. Did you get the university job? <laughs> it's funny. Um, my mum kind of – reinforce and kind of empowered me especially i'm assuming she had the same conversations with nick but that we were kind of in charge of our own destiny every drive to school should always say i don't care if you're a if you're a garbage man if that's what you want to be i just don't want that to be the only option that you have i got towards the end of high school and kind of already knew what i wanted to do i wanted to be a software engineer and i wanted to work in tech and towards the end of year 12 i felt like school was holding me back. I felt like I needed just to finish and get that piece of paper so I could get on with the rest of my life. And I didn't really see university as the logical next step for me. I wanted to start working. I wanted to get my hands on and I felt like I could learn a lot more from people on the job than I would from a lecturer in a, in a classroom. I, I had a conversation with David Shane and- Who's he? Currently, he's, he's one of the founders of OIF um, Venture Fund. Prior to that, he was founder of Comtech. And at the time, he was the chairman at a company called Macromatics. Um, How so old were you? I was 17. Yep. A software company that um, provided a lot of data to QSR restaurants. What's that? Um, like quick service. Oh, right. Um, so KFC, Red Rooster, Reporto. Right. Um, and I was a 17-year-old kid. He gave me my first crack. And as a 17-year-old working at a pretty successful software company uh, was an opportunity that not a lot of people probably would have had had at the same stage. Um, and I didn't realize it at the time, but I was working with engineers who all went on to become CTOs at different companies. CTO of Prosper, of Zip, um, company called Range Me, a whole um, one big switch. And these were the people that I was working directly one-on-one -on -one with that I was learning from as a 17-year-old. And I negotiated with my parents to defer for the first year of university and they agreed. Negotiated. <laughs> and then- Please let me work. <laughs> Um, and then it got to the second year and I basically turned around to my parents and I said, I've worked my way up in this company. It's been 12 months. I feel like I've got a really good foothold in, in, in this business and I don't want to let that go in exchange for university. So again, we agree that debt. I, <laughs> um, so we agreed that I do university part-time and part-time uni isn't just two days straight and then three days off. It's an hour here, two hours there. And I realized that I wasn't really making much progress in either direction. I wasn't doing much from a uni perspective, mm. but also I was slipping away from a professional perspective. Again, negotiated with my parents and they agreed to um, to let me study by correspondence. So online only, and that way I could continue working and study on the side. And I did that for a couple of years and then eventually decided that 
what I was doing professionally far surpassed what I was doing um, from a university perspective. I was maybe a third of the way through. I'd just been offered a job at KPMG, um, and not a junior role, but not a crazy senior role. And what I realized was that my experience um, spoke more volumes than what a piece of paper would. So yes, while my parents did originally have that thought and my grandparents especially had the thought totally. that we need this piece of paper, um, I realized increasingly that um, it wasn't as important as what I thought it was, um, especially in a, an environment like tech where it moves so quick. Um, being on the ground and in the job was so much more important and more, so much more valuable. How old are you now? Do you mind saying? Do 31. Mind? Okay, so you're young, right? So you're my, like my, one of my son's age. I've got four boys. You're like my younger son's age. I'm your parents' generation, and I remember my grandparents, same as your um, mother and father's parents. The emphasis in those days was you had to go out and get a, get a degree. Yep. Then you worked. But I think today there are environments, like you said, where not back then, but today, their environments, but they'll take you on and they sort of take you, I don't want to say the word apprenticeship, but they take you through the process and you can you can actually learn on the job yep. and you learn more. what's more relevant. You don't learn a whole lot of other crap. The university system has a lot of subjects, et cetera, in there, which you will never use in a specialist, specialist environment, particularly yep. when it comes to engineering yep. and particularly when it comes to certain parts of enge software engineering. Yep. So you might do electrical engineer degree or you might do a computer science degree, um, you know, like – but they take you down so many rabbit holes over the four years or three years, whatever it is, take you down so many rabbit holes that are actually ultimately irrelevant to what you end up doing. Yeah. Um, but they, instead of doing, you know, getting you to learn four or five different languages, coding languages, just that's all you need to know and uh, how their application works, which is the only part of engineering degree that's important to you once you become an engineer. Yeah. Um, uh, it's better. It's much better. But there were those, those things weren't available to us. And as a parent, I didn't realize that with my kids. So I pushed my kids, go, you're going to get a degree. Um, and, uh, and my parents pushed me um, to do the same for the, for the same reasons. I didn't have any alternatives, but my sons have sort of pointed out to me that that the degree was actually pretty useless. Yeah. And uh, in fact, I didn't need some. One of them says, I did, he would say, I don't need a degree at all to, to do what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, and learn on the job and learn on the job in a year, no debt, yep. got paid, yep. goes to university, uh, takes three years, builds up a big debt, doesn't get paid, had to go and do some sort of shit kicker job at Woolworths or something. No, he was a pizza delivery guy, you know, with the one at um, Old South Head Road there. Millennium. Uh, Millennium. Yeah. <laughs> he was a pizza guy. <laughs> I mean, like Millennium. everyone's done yeah, yeah. <laughs> He was an to deliver pizza to, you know, like to my place. And I'm with a, you know, like, uh, yeah, he worked there, okay? And he's your age, same yeah. age you. So, um, yeah, so it sort of went backwards. And it's, it's what do you think about that as a as a young 31-year-old? What would you say to someone who's in their 20s in exactly the same position as you were in your 20s, thinking about should I go on this course or not? Yeah, it's a great point. I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of my mates that were going through it at the time as well. Um, I believe that university is really important if you plan or want to go into a career where it requires university Doctor, degree. lawyer. Correct. Um, or if you don't know what you want to do and you want to buy yourself some time and you want to try and figure it out. And that have, makes sense too. Um, for... Industries where it's not as applicable, and you learn a lot more on the on the job. And if you kind of know the direction you want to go, 
then I believe that that chasing the opportunity is is more valuable. And I believe that there are more businesses these days that care less and less about that piece of paper than what they did 20 years ago. Um, one of the big things that Dave Shane used to say to me was, I love companies that say that they that uh, applicants need a university degree because it means they can't hire half my staff. So, um, that and again, that, that kind of was in, instilled in me. Um, and yeah, the, the person ultimately is so much more important than the ability because the ability can be taught and can be acquired, but the person is the person. Um, so yeah, I think there's always going to be outside noise, outside pressure, especially from prior generations, because that's how things were done. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I mean, I hopefully <laughs> the the older generations have a bit more of an open open mind um, to uh, the same as my parents did to let me and let them kind of go in the in the path that they think is most suitable to them. So, you, did you work with KPMG then? No, I turned down the job. Turned down the job, and um, where did you go? I so I stayed. So I was at Macromatics for a little bit longer, um, and then I decided that. I didn't want to be a hardcore software engineer. Well, well, but could you just describe what a hard, what a, soft, a hardcore software engineer is, by the way? So basically, someone that writes code day in day yeah. out. You get tickets, Killer. you write code, and what I realized was that I was never going to be the best software engineer in the world. I liked being able to speak the language and I liked having the knowledge, but I didn't want it to be my day my day job, and. What I was really good at was getting from A to B. I knew where I am, I knew where we need to get to, and I'll work out how to get there. That means we need to create something. We need to create an outcome for a client. I guess you guys are dealing with clients or customers. Yep. Um, we need to create an outcome for the customer. The customers briefed us in on that outcome. This is what they want. What does the architecture look like? It, are we talking about architecture now? The architecture, less architecture, more the solution, thinking outside the box. What is a solution that someone hasn't thought of to solve this problem? Um, and I would say, so kind of taking a, a, a few steps back. So my parents had a jewelry store in Sydney CBD for 35 years. So I was brought up on jewelry and on retail. Um, I used to sell Pandora to my math teacher at a discount and she would sell to her her network of friends and we just had a little side business going on where we'd meet at Westfield Bondi Junction, exchange product and um, and I was I guess I was never really the entrepreneurial one. That was always my brother. Um, but he was so entrepreneurial that it kind of forced me to think in ways that I hadn't before. Um, and it was funny growing up, I always saw these business people in either in reality or on TV. And they were always portrayed as these cutthroat um, people that would kind of do whatever they need to do in order to get whatever they need done. Donald Trump. And I just kept thinking that that's not me. And for a long time, I thought that it wasn't an industry or a space that I could go into because I didn't have it in me to be that kind of person. And then the world shifted, the world changed and changed. And suddenly um, what I started to see was that these people that were in in high roles at successful businesses had more more integrity um, and it and it kind of started to to mold more towards the what what I saw myself as as being as a kind of person. Um, so fast forward to after Macromatics and um, 
I previously was selling Pandora on eBay. Um, I'd handed the keys over to my brother. All of the stories out of Afterpay talk about Nick selling Pandora on eBay was actually my eBay business that he that he took over. Um, but I kind of let let that one slide. <laughs> and um, he was running that. He decided to bring that into a standalone um, standalone jewelry website. So I joined him there. Um, it was two of us and a, and a couple other kind of part-timers for the most part and everything had to be self-taught i had to teach myself e-com i had to teach myself fulfillment warehousing all of these skills i had to learn from scratch but again i knew where i was i knew where i needed to get to and i could work out what needed to be done in order to get from a to b um and that's how nick like my brother and i worked really well while we're at ice together what, he, where? What? it was called ice jewelry right i see yeah right. um he would come to me with a problem I would come back to him with a solution. We'd kind of confirm that we were happy and then I'd go off and execute. And we worked like that for a couple of years and then he had this light bulb moment of after pay and he went off on- Funding on, the purchases. Yeah, and he went off on that on that journey. Um, and I kind of, I was still running ice, but was also with him at Afterpay in, in the early days, um, doing a few bits and pieces. and. That that same working relationship that that we had at Ice continued into Afterpay, where he'd come to me with a problem, we'd ideate a solution, and then I'd go and and execute. And then one day, I remember we got pulled up, um, and I think it was the COO at the time said, "I know this is how you guys work, and it's worked really well for you guys for you guys up until now, but we we've got a structure, we've got a framework that you guys need to to work under." So, um, yeah, it was it, it's. I mean, I guess the 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 thing with my brother and I is we've always had a really good working relationship. Um, I've always known what I'm good at. I know what he's good at. He knows what I'm good at and what he's good at. Um, and we're always really good at kind of meeting in the middle and and delegating without stepping on each other's toes. Would you would you call would you would you describe it like he cuts you so? I don't quite understand. <laughs> well, like well, if we just go back to um, uh, I, I'm talk, talking more in terms of um, you know like a, a poetic way of describing right. it, but. As an entrepreneur, he would go around cutting the, cutting the suit, like cu- cutting out the, the piece of cloth. But of course, it looks like the shape of the suit, and he's already chosen the suit material. Looks nice and all that sort of stuff. But you have to sew it up. It has to be stitched up all the way through. And uh, someone has in every good business, there's someone who cuts and there's someone who sews. Yeah. Um, I describe my younger brothers as the sewer. I'm the cutter. And entrepreneurs usually consider to be cutters, uh, uh, sewers. Oh, sorry, entrepreneurs usually give these cutters, and but they always have a bloody good sale behind them. Yeah, um, you know, and you know, people like me, I'm not sure about um, Nick, but uh, cutters are a bit of a mess sometimes, yeah. Yeah. and uh, you need you know, either a lawyer or something like to come following you through, <laughs> make sure there's not too much mess. Um, and in your case, I mean, definitely in the case of what your expertise is, is um, you know, IT solutions or, or infrastructure solutions or solutions around. Yeah, how was, do I execute? I was the executor. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Nick definitely is the cutter. I mean, again, I've I've had the fortune, like I mean, I, obviously he's kind of my big brother. I've looked up to him and, and taken a lot of what he does so well and kind of tried to apply that a lot to what I do. So while he was the cutter and I would kind of execute, um, although at Afterpay he had a lot of really great executors around him, including himself, um, but what I started to learn from him was not only how to 
how to sew. But how to cut. Exactly. So you learn the entrepreneurial skill at the same time. Exactly. You know what's very interesting about that? Because as an entrepreneur myself, I would find I find it very difficult to be learn how to do the other part because the other part requires got a, a lot of attention to detail, a lot of patience, um, and it, it, it requires a fair bit of interaction with the team. Yeah. Like, you know, because it'll end up being a whole lot of people involved. Um, whereas, whereas my younger brother can also, like you, he's observed my entrepreneurship. He can he can become that person. He has become that person. Yeah. Um, it's much more difficult to go back the other direction for, say, Nick or I. Yeah. It's it's. I know I can execute, but it it's sort of um, requires. There's a lot more subsets to it, yeah. and uh, it requires a lot of subset thinking. Yeah. And it's a thought process way of thinking as opposed to when you, if you're the person who's doing the execution like you and you're thinking about being the person who's going to be the entrepreneur, that's just like dreaming big and thinking big and looking at observing big things. Yeah. And it's actually more fun. It's yeah. a bit more enjoyable and it's yeah. easier to do. So much. Easier to adapt <laughs> yeah. to be that person. It doesn't mean you're always going to be successful, but um, it is an easier transition, I think. Yeah. Have you found that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I guess part of coming up with solutions is always is part of that, I guess, entrepreneurial ship. Um, again, it's I'm at A, I want to get to B. How like how can I get to B and slowly work my way back and work work through it in, in smaller steps in order to do that. So, I mean, even when um, kind of when I started working on Flagship, the, the overall goal for me was bringing more tech into brick and mortar retail. Well, let's talk about Flagship. Okay, so... Because, you know, you've gone through the afterpay process, you, you know, you've had all the stuff that you did before, you, you know, learn how to code and blah, blah, blah. So reflection, okay? Yeah. Give me the light bulb moment that you thought what flagship does is something that society needs. So towards the end of, I think it was 2020, um, was when afterpay had been, been acquired by Block. Mm -hmm. Um, I very quickly realized that no one person had the same level of impact that they once upon a time had. And that was the time for me to start exploring new opportunities. I never wanted to be a small cog in a big machine. That's why I didn't take the KPMG role. I wanted for everything that I do to have a material impact in, in, in what I was doing. Um, I started consulting for a brand called Venroy here in Sydney. Oh, I know the Venroy boys. Yeah, they're great. Oh, my son yeah. is their accountant. Is their CFO. <laughs> right. Alex, yeah, yeah. My, one of my, my older boys. Small world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Sean. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love Sean. He's great. <laughs> um, so I was doing some some contract work for them, um, focusing on their e-com site, and I started asking them questions about their stores so that I could make better e-com decisions. And they couldn't answer any of my questions. About their physical stores. About their physical stores. Because all of my digital touch, all of my retail had always been digital. Um, I'm digital native. I, I read data. I can speak in binary, <laughs> kind of. Um, but everything for me is, is very data-driven. I always say I never knew the first thing about jewelry. I just knew how to read data to put the right product in front of the right person at the right time. Um, and this was me coming into a world of no data. So the goal for me was essentially how do I take more of that digital mindset that I've had and how do I apply that to brick and mortar retail? And again, it was that it was that A to B test and learn, poke my nose in different places until something sticks. 
And I landed on something and it's funny because what I landed on actually is now solution today. The solution I landed on was a company that we'd partnered with out of Israel and they produced these batteryless Bluetooth stickers. You'd batteryless? Stick Bluetooth stickers. Bluetooth stickers. So it's a sticker. Yeah. Literally a sticker. You'd stick it onto a swing tag of an item of clothing. We'd have a wireless charger mounted to the roof that was yep. also a receiver. It would charge all of these stickers in the store and every sticker would send a, a real-time location back to the receiver. And that's for st stolen goods. That was one component, but the bigger component was that we were actually able to get real-time location of every item in a store. Right. So we were able to tell retailers what's being picked up, what's being tried on, what's converting, what's not converting, how long are people spending in a fitting room. Um, and again, it was all of the analytics and data that I'd had from a, from a digital perspective that I was trying to bring in store. Right. Um, and what we realized with that was that hardware is challenging. The macroeconomic climate changed and the narrative shifted away from growth towards cost savings and efficiencies. And what I realized was selling a retailer on why they should increase their cost base for the long-term reduction in cost base was a very tough sell. Mm. For a hardware solution that takes a long time to install, long time to see value in, um, and there were a lot of other complexities associated with it. So. We, for all intents and purposes, had to go back to the drawing board and back to square one. Um, and we had an, invest, an investor partner or our current investor partner back then who took one look at our cash flow forecast and basically said, you're going to face an uphill battle with hardware, go and find a software solution. And so no runway. Exactly. So went back to the drawing board and we literally just spent weeks speaking to retailers. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss since 2013 Bombas has donated over 100 million socks underwear and t-shirts to those facing homelessness if we counted those on air this ad would last over 1157 days but if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible it would take just a few clicks because every time you make a purchase Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Okay, I'm back here with Simon Mullen and we're talking about, we just he's just taking me through the journey that he realized that Hardware is a very hard sell, actually, in terms of capital and the amount of patient capital that is available out there in marketplaces from investors in terms of runways, et cetera, you know, cash runway. So he's decided to go down the, the software route. But to go down the software route, you've got to build something and it's got to be something that there's demand for. And you said, Simon, that you went and talked to some retailers. Um, are you able to mention the names of the retailers? Yeah, I mean, Venroy, yep. Nude Lucy, RM Williams. Um, again, I 
I can, this kind of comes back to the, the privilege point is that I do feel privileged that I've got access to. How did you get access to them? Through Afterpay. Afterpay. Through working at Afterpay. I rub shoulders with a lot of these brands. Yep. Um, oh, because Afterpay would have been on their, yeah, would exactly. have been on their site. Exactly. Yeah, I get it. The, the thing about the retail industry specifically is that everyone knows everyone. It's a very small world and everyone moves from brand to brand to brand. So you meet one person, they've worked somewhere, they can open doors. And again, it comes back to the A to B. I know the B, which is the retail I want to get to and what is my path to open that door. Um, so, okay, you ring up Venroy or whoever it is that you talk to. That's one thing to know them. It's another thing to get them to agree to open up their doors, their data doors. I mean, how do you work that? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It's just like building the relationship and building that trust that um, when we do find something that there is going to be something in here and once we find it, they're going to reap the benefits of it because they'll get first access. Okay, so it. that's what you say. I'm going to give you, like I'll give you an exclusive six-month run or something like that. Yeah, or they, they were really, they kind of shaped the product. So, um, I mean, again, kind of touching on what you mentioned before, I'm a big advocate of I don't know what I don't know. Yep. And I can come in with a hypothesis and I can think that something's going to work, but until I actually find out from the source of truth, I don't really know. Um, so I, again, I was really fortunate that I had a really great product manager with me who knew the right questions to ask. And we would go into these retailer meetings and, and one of my strengths is pattern recognition. So Nick always used to go to these in, for these investment banking jobs and you had to do the pattern recognition tests and I would do those. What is that? Um, they would give you like symbols on a sheet and yeah. it would basically say what comes next in the sequence. Right. Um, and that's my that's my bread and butter, like solving Rubik's Cubes, puzzles, all of that kind of yep. stuff. So when I'm sitting with retailers and I'm having conversations with them, I'm able to kind of identify what the consistencies are across those retailers. So we'd go into one retailer meeting and we'd come out of it and I'd say to my product manager, hey, for the next meeting, I want you to focus on this. So you would recognize a pattern. Exactly. And um, and then you would um, narrate that back to your product manager. Just just explain what a product manager is. I mean, so you said you had a really good product manager. What, what are we talking about here? Um, did you get him out of, uh, out of um, Canva or something like that? Right? So we got him out of a company called Stake, the trading platform. Yep. And prior to that, he was at Big Commerce and prior to that, Telstra. What are the uh, characteristics of a product manager? I'm essentially the mad scientist that's coming up with all these weird and wacky ideas. And I've got a team of engineers whose responsibility is to build and build those those wacky ideas. Software ideas, yep. yeah. And what I need is I basically need someone that sits between me and them and also the retailers who can make sense of what I'm saying, who can prioritize it, um, and who can make sure that what we're working on actually makes sense and that it's doable and that we're not working on it. It's going to take six months to build when what we need to build is the thing that's going to take two weeks to build. Right. So he manages the roadmap. He manages the engineers. He manages myself. He manages retail. He's, he's I mean, for all intents and purposes, kind of the central neurosystem that, that exists in the business to make sure that everyone, that every stakeholder gets what they need to get. He's the decision-making part. He's the prefrontal cortex. Exactly. Uh, Literally. Uh, driving the amygdala. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> like that's you yeah, the amygdala. exactly yeah exactly yeah i get um, that uh yeah I mean, we all need those from time to time yeah I, I so that's interesting so you you made sure so you understand the structure so i mean i guess that comes with your logic your, your the way your brain works log in a logic sense so you're you're out there looking at patterns and trying to derive 
which by the way is what machine learning does, but um, <laughs> your machine learning through your own brain patterns from the interviews that you're doing or the discussions you're having, then you're coming up with um, what might be solutions. You put in a product, product manager in, in the middle of it all. He or she then talks to the engineers who build so they're the building, the building the bit down the bottom, and then hopefully delivering to where well, you go and then test it. Correct. So, so just and you've told me that the way you you do your part, the machine learning through Simon's brain, you you go out and access those networks that you know you've been lucky enough to get to meet, or your history has allowed you to meet by virtue of being an afterpay, et cetera. So that, that'll make sense. That's leverage. That's good. It's good leverage. And and how do you convince, by the way, do, is there any discussion at any time with the retailers you that you manage to talk to? They ever say, what are we going to get out of this? I mean, they, they get the value that the product brings. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we, I mean, we built a prototype. We didn't, we didn't allocate any engineering resources until the prototype was fully ready to go. The retailers were responsible for, for defining and, and refining that prototype. So they, they could see firsthand exactly what their feedback was, was generating. And they could also see that once we, once we build this, that they're going to have access to the solution that they haven't had access to before. Right. Tell me the solution. So give me, give, wrap it into a like a, a narrative. What is the solution that flagship does? Let's say let's let's pick one, any one of the retailers. Let's pick Venroy for example. Let's pick their Byron Bay shop. Yep. For example. Yep. They got one in Byron Bay because I've been yeah. in there. <laughs> I didn't buy anything, but I've been in there. Um, so essentially, we're we're the central platform that sits between the retailer and their stores. Yep. So they've got a store in Byron. They've got a store in Capri. They've got a store in Montauk in New York. And they've got very limited resources in terms of people that are capable of physically going to those stores. Yep. But they want to be able to know how do those stores look. They want to make decisions around product placement in those stores. Is that and that's what otherwise is referred to usually as merchandising? Correct. Yeah. So normally the way you would do it is you would need to send a person there. Yep. That is the only way that you can do it. Or you're getting emails or photos back and forth, or jumping on a FaceTime. And it's a process that kind of sits all over the place. In terms of merchandising, what we're talking about is um, where the racks are, what's on the racks. Um, is it close to the cash register or um, you know at the front door as you walk in? You know wh- where is the best point places and the highest um, return places for the most expensive breasts, for example, whatever it is. Um, in terms of how you put them on racks, what do the racks look like? What the spacing looks like? Correct. All uh, of colors, that. coding, blah blah blah, etc. That's what we're talking about. That's merchandising. Exactly. So you're right. It's it's a difficult thing to do, and you, especially when companies are trying to keep numbers of people down because yep. it's a cost thing. So, what does your flagship solution do? In a, I guess it's a digital solution yeah straight to the store yeah so every store has a digital representation in the form of a floor plan and placing products in the store becomes the simplest drag and drop so a head office can say this is how i want my store in italy to work how i want my store in italy to look this is how i want my store in new york to look and i've got full control of those stores from my office in paddington yeah but what we do on the back of all of that is we now have the product placement so essentially what we were trying to do with the hardware but without the hardware that we now know where products are placed throughout a retailer's store so we can map that through to sales and we can tell retailers exactly how much revenue is coming from each part of each store and, and can how you much- tell them when to change exactly 
So we can say you've got 100 stores in your network. One of them is in regional New South Wales that you can only get to once every couple of months because it's not that accessible. And you've got a dress in your front window and it is not performing, but you have a dress that's really deep in your store that no one's actually seeing that is performing well. So we recommend that you take that dress and put it in the front window. Right. And then, then they take that recommendation and send it onto the store. Exactly. Right. So in the regional area. Exactly. And they change it around. Exactly. So visual merchandising for a long time and even still with the retailers that we're speaking to, um, it's often a one size fits all. Um, it's a snapshot. It's a moment in time. We're going to change it once a week, once a fortnight, once a month. And there's no data. It just looks pretty. So we'll do it. Um, and what we do is we provide a bit more of the analytics that sits behind it. We quantify it. We tell them how it's performing and we turn it into a more live solution so they can make a change at 10 o'clock in the morning and then a different change at two o'clock in the afternoon. So it's dynamic. Are they? Are you prompting them or are they uh, dipping in when they need to? How does it work? So at the moment, I mean, we're still early enough that they're just dipping in when they need to, but the long-term plan is to be proactive. We feed through the it's recommendations. Exactly. So, you know, like I'll get an email or whatever. Whatever, however you notify me, um, is it app based? Is this? Again? It's web based at the moment. Web based at the moment, so yeah. I'm going to get an email and it's going to come come, come to me. It's going to say, you know, I own a shop in uh, Byron Bay, just to pick on a place, um, and it says that um, uh, those um, shorts because it's summer, um, those linen shorts that um, the girls are wearing um, that have been they're currently sitting at the back behind the behind the cash register, which no one can get to or f- feel a bit um, intimidated to walk around to get to. They should be somewhere else close to the change room. Yeah. Because they sell better. Correct. Right. And it, you should do that today. And by the way, you do it today and a couple of days later, you know, maybe it's not in quite the right place. Do, do you get to the data as to what is selling? I mean, exactly. you're getting access to that information as well. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. So we're able to actually see what, what the impact is of, of that adjustment. Wow. Exactly. Um, in terms of attracting investors, do you have to build IP protection? Um, software is very hard yeah. to protect. Um, I mean, again, even with Afterpay, you kind of see how many people, it doesn't matter if you're the first mover, people are going to come and copy. Yeah. Um, it's always be the best first mover. Exactly. If you so, weren't. Exactly. So first mover advantage for me is more important than IP protection. Um, and building those relationships and doing things right is also more important for me than IP protection. That's IP in some respects anyway. Exactly. But it's personal IP. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, unfortunately, I mean, there's not much that can be done from an actual IP perspective. So, so when, when, then when it comes to talking to investors, because you've got to raise money for these things because there's yep. a bit of a long tail on it, a bit of patient capital is required because, you know, it's better than a hardware bill, but software bill still takes time testing new iterations, iteration after iteration, et cetera. You know, so how did you go about talking to investors and were they ever worried about IP at any stage or non-protection of IP? Um, Is it a question? Yeah, not. I mean, it was it was raised. It was raised more with the hardware than with the software right. because we didn't own the hardware. Um, with the software, there's a lot, especially with what we're doing, there's so many little nuances in what we're building that if you don't nail it, um, it won't work. Yep. And there have been other, other providers that have tried to tackle similar things and they've fallen flat because – 
I mean, for a lot of them, they, again, they didn't listen to the retailers. Um, and visual merchandising is the starting point for us, but the plan is to move beyond visual merchandising and go just from in-store visual merchandising to omni-channel visual merchandising. And then from omni-channel merchandising to, into marketing and move, bring in, in, incorporate e-com into it and incorporate the buyer into it and the planner. Um, and there's this buyer kind of, being the buyer of what? The, what you mean buyer of what they what they stock exactly yeah. so deciding how many units they purchase um so so it's going to be like a, a complete nearly a complete inventory from placement to what I hold, what I carry, when I get it ready for my, um, seasons, etc. Exactly. That's that's the goal. The goal is to be to the retail industry what Atlassian is to the engineering world, right? Or what Canva is to the design world. Yeah, yeah. Um, this basically this this platform that everyone that any retailer needs to use. Because whatever function of retail they sit in, we have the solution for them. And as soon as you, and let's say I'm an investor, as soon as you say Canva to design and Atlassian to engineering, my ears prick up. So, um, because you're talking about retail, but it doesn't matter. Retail needs just as much help as everybody else, but none of those other two, Atlassian or Canva, will actually help the retailer uh, in terms of how they run the shop, how they um, merchandise the shop. Um, how, those just those two phrases. Um, that's not something you just invented now. Um, I would imagine. Um, how important is it in terms of talking to investors? It is. Is it to be able to, to simply describe what you do? Because that's the the most simple and clear description in those two phrases. Then we spent over the last forty minutes talking <laughs> about. Like, um, how important is that? It's. It's important. It's it's definitely important um, to an investor. I'm talking about. Yeah, it's. I mean, when speaking to an investor, I want to be able to show the bigger picture vision and yep. where this can go and where we want this to go. But at the same time, you don't want it to be so big and ambitious that it's not actually achievable. Yeah, yeah. So honestly, with pretty much all the investors I've spoken to, I've actually taken them on the same journey that I took you on here, where I start small and then take you through to the bigger picture opportunity because then you can actually see, if I start with, I want to be the Atlassian, I want to be to, um, to retail what Atlassian is to engineers, you're going to say, okay, that's some big, hairy, audacious goal, but is it actually achievable? And only by starting at the start again, by coming back to where we are, and taking on this journey of, of how to get from A to B, um, is it actually possible to show any investor that it's actually achievable? That pattern of behaviour of investors, something that you've observed in the past in terms of the build-up that ends up in leading to a successful outcome for you, someone who might be seeking an investment. So have you observed, did you observe that in the afterpay days, for example, that maybe your brother did it or Anthony did it, you know, taking investors through this process in a very, you know, small bits, build, build, build. Instead of walking and say, I'm going to build the solution for retailers uh, uh, similar to the way Afterpay did and uh, Lassie did, uh, you know, because that's an important point a lot of people like to know, like that, that a lot of people don't know. Yeah. How hard do you go into these things? And is that something you've observed? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's the way I approached investor meetings is the same way I approach my retailer meetings and it's the same it's the way I would approach building code it's iterative and I'll go in yep. and I'll test something and see if it works and if it works I know then in the meeting in the meeting yep and then I know that the next meeting I go into I'm going to focus on what worked in that previous meeting 
And then I can build on that and I'll see, okay, that didn't work. So when I go to the next investor meeting, I'm going to focus on what did work. And what happens is by having enough of these investor meetings, by the final investor meeting, I've got it so kind of down packed that I know exactly the journey that I'm going on and how I'm positioning it and what I'm focusing on and the features that I'm focusing on because I know that that is what got the best reception when speaking to investors. I love this. So so this is very important. So, I mean, for people listening to these things, um, and this doesn't matter whether you're raising money or whether you're just trying to prosecute your idea um, to see whether people warm to it uh, or there's a market for it. Um, I'm a big proponent of what you do. So I quite like... Um, having lots of meetings with lots of people and people go, oh, that was a, might be a waste of time or is that a punish? You know, why am I going to do this meeting? I've got a lot of other things I should be prioritizing. Yes, but in the beginning at least, the more people you talk to, the more people you present to, the more refined your whole proposition becomes. 100%. And you need, you know, some people, by the way, don't operate this way. Some people just go and they just go mental and they just put it straight out there and, you know, they hook a big fish. Yeah. I think that might be more luck. Hundred percent. You know, and but they're the, those same people who just do that are the first people to prosecute. Say, don't waste your time, all this sort of shit. Don't talk to VCs. Don't talk to this organization. Don't do it. But what you should do is uh, just go for the big. Find yourself a billionaire who can invest in you. <laughs> uh, yeah, but billionaires aren't dumb, and uh, they generally speaking do like you to start from the beginning and build it up for them. They're, yeah. they're very rare. Do you actually hook them? What's your experience with this stuff? Because you've seen all these billionaires, you've yeah. seen a whole lot. Yeah. Um, my experience is, first of all, relationship is key. Um, I think there's a single investor that we've brought on board that in the first meeting, I landed them. Not a single one. Most of them were multiple and multiple meetings in terms of building that relationship and that mutual trust to basically say, this is what I say that we're going to do. And I can actually show you that we actually did what I said we were going to do. Um, and the other thing is I... It w I was always very focused on putting the right people around me. It wasn't just taking money for the sake of taking money. It's actually identifying what value someone can bring with their money. As an investor, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, value add. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, for, for argument's sake, I mean, there have been a lot of people that probably that still do think that Nick in like kind of is, is the key investor. And Nick is an investor, but he's one of our minority investors. And one of the big reasons amongst others is that if he was our only investor, then I know how time poor he is because there's so many other priorities going on for him. And I would know that I wouldn't get the resourcing that I need and the mentoring that I need from these other investors in order to open the doors and to validate ideas and come to retailer meetings and meet with my team. That is what is important to me. So everyone i've been very intentional that every single person that hits the cap table has got some value and it's not just taking money for the sake of taking money it's actually people paying in order to contribute participation exactly and as I opposed to i'm an investor on return and, and hassle exactly one of my one of my like one of the vc funds that we brought in this round i caught up with her for for the other day and she said i work for you let me know let me know what you need. And first of all, I mean, that's what you want in, in an investor is someone who's contributed and now is looking at how they can add value. But I turned around to her and I said, and this is my response to her and this is the response to everyone in my team. I was like, you don't work for me, you work with me. And everyone in my team is the exact same thing. No one works for me, everyone works with me. 
I've got a different role in the company than anyone else, but I'm no better or more important than any of my engineers or my product manager or my sales team or ops or anyone. And we're all equal contributors towards this and we all have our own role in this company. Very interesting. So, Simon, you're, I, mean, I like your, I like your, you've gone beyond prototype. You're, you're, you're selling into at this stage. You're selling. Yeah, in, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's yeah. a license arrangement to people yeah, pay yeah, like yeah. license yeah. fee. Yeah. So you you license them. Um, do you give them um, like number of licenses per shop or, or, so or we, users user license? How's it work? So we give them unlimited user access. Right. We charge them per shop per month. Per, per shop per month. Yeah. So so you're so you're gonna be on prototype. You're up and running. Obviously, there's gonna be more iterations as you learn. You learn. You learn. Always. And uh, you've got your investor base at this stage set. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. You're, you've got a runway, cash cash flow, uh, yeah, yeah. capital runway, yeah. and, and cash flow. I mean, I mean, cash flow is usually not positive until a certain <laughs> point in time. But um, you've you've got the whole thing mapped out. Yeah. Um, where do you want to land this in the end, Simon? So like, what what do you see? I don't know it's a big question, but. Where do you see you being? I mean, do you see you being the Atlassian for engineers or the Canva for designers? Like, it, it, it's a good question. It, when I go back to the start of my professional career, um, I was chasing the salary. I was chasing the dollars. And I kind of nipped that in the butt pretty early. And what I realized was that I wanted to chase the knowledge. And what I learned was that if I do things right, and it, then the money will come. Um, and... It's the same mentality that I've got here. Yes, I've kind of got this kind of cash flow forecast in terms of where I want to get this and the targets that I want to hit. But I wholeheartedly believe that if we do things right, if we treat retailers right, if we listen to them and we build the right products, that everything else will fall into place. Um, and all I'm focused on is getting a return for every single one of my investors because that is what's most important to me. They believed in me enough to put their money where their mouth is and I want to make sure that I repay them. But I know, again, that the side effect of that is that it will work out for me as well. But that's not my driving force. My driving force isn't what is my net worth going to be at the end of this. My driving force is actually what is the net worth of my engineers going to be? What is the net worth of my investors going to be? So you give it is your your staff all participate in Every, equity? Everyone in my team's got equity. And do you do you give it like on an earn out so they uh, they you know it's like you know vest over a few, number Correct. of years or what sort of stuff? Exactly. There's yeah. a yeah vesting period. And where do you get where do you get those structured information from? Like do you, <laughs> your lawyers or what are you using to go, to set that up? Yeah, I I brought in an external cosec who helped me with that stuff. And again, it was a very steep learning curve. I got things wrong. Um, and every time I feel like I've understood, I've gone to the top of a learning curve, there's another learning curve that comes to meet me. Um, and that's what I'm learning is part of running a business and part of being an entrepreneur is that there's always something new that I'm going to have to learn and pick up. And I just need to try and navigate it making as few mistakes as possible because I know I'm going to make mistakes and do backfill, things wrong. Backfill. Exactly. But hopefully those mistakes that I make aren't going to be so detrimental that they come back to bite me. In the well, it's the same as writing code though because, you know, you can write the, uh, something that looks unbelievable and um, the next thing you know, it, it breaks down and, you know, there's some problem and there's a bug and you've got to fix that bug. You fix that bug, there's another three bugs and, you know. But everything, being an entrepreneur is the same. 100%. There's, it, you, there's you, a lot of correlations. There's a lot of correlations between being an engineer and running a business. And there's a lot of correlations between running a business and running a sporting club. There's a lot of, it's amazing how many consistencies there are across different industries. Um, and it's just 
the same approach, but in a different framework. And finally, Simon Molnar. Your school was right next to Centennial Park. Was well, the other side of Centennial Park? Are you a Rooster supporter or a South supporter? <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm actually a West Tiger supporter. Oh my god! Well, that's better than being a South supporter. Uh, yeah, no, I know. But living in these suburbs, that's better than being a South supporter because that is a, <laughs> that is real bad if you're a South supporter. I I got that from my dad, and every week I'm like, I wish I just I, you <laughs> I had, like couldn't support. You had a few shock of yeah. few, last couple of years, yeah. But, yeah. but Benji, I think would be a good coach. Yeah, I I agree. Again, I'm big into my data and kind of like that that ML that sits in my head. The thing about, I guess- ML being machine learning. Yeah, the thing about machine learning and AI is um, it's a lot of confirmation bias. So what I used to, I, I'm a big rugby league supporter, um, enjoyed my, my fantasy rugby league and I used to get really annoyed- Which one that, are you playing on now? Are you on the NRL one? Or? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's called the bench. Um, and I used to get really annoyed that the players that I picked each week weren't scoring. So what I did was I paid someone offshore to to scrape years of NRL data for me. And every week I would punch in two fixtures and it would tell me which players were most likely to score in that game. And long and behold, those weeks, those players were likely to score. Um, and what I also used to do was I used to look in, at reserve grade data and have a look and see which players are excelling in reserve grade um, to be able to tell me when they make it to first grade, how likely are they to be successful in first grade? And what ended up happening was I, these guys in reserve grade kept coming to first grade and then but playing Origin or playing for Australia. And I started to realize that there's actually something in in this data that that I'm looking at. So start sharing with Benji. Yeah, yeah so that's that's part of what I was chatting to him about. I'm I'm become quite friendly with a couple um, kind of current and former players. And again, what I found is that a lot of what I, the way I run my business resonates with them if their clubs were run the same way. So what do you say about losing James Tedesco then? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Don't talk about it, I'm just joking. Yeah. So I'm on, I really liked our conversation. I've enjoyed a lot. There's something in this. Good luck to you. Thank you, I appreciate it. Really nice it to meet great you. chat. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.